A few years ago, a friend of mine was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and initially she was told she had just six months to live. And that six months went by, and then another six months went by, and then she was into her third six months. And day by day, week by week, she got thinner and thinner until the last time I saw her, she truly was just like like a skeleton lying on her bed. And actually, we're living with a quite constant and growing pain. And she had this determination to keep her morphine levels as low as she could, which meant that she was endlessly tormented by her body. And finally, I found my, I, I could only ask her, what is it that is keeping you here? What is it that is keeping you alive? What is it that is keeping you so determined to wake up each morning? And she answered, she said, I've done so many things badly in my life. She said, I've made a mess of so many things that I want to do this last thing right. I want to die well. And her sister said to me, she said, she's only going to let herself go if she can die a saint. And I felt actually quite stunned by these words. And I found myself wondering, well, What did it mean for her? What did it mean in her heart to die right, to die well? What compulsion, actually, what even what monster within her demanded that she should feel no fear, that she should endure endless pain, that she should pursue saintliness? No matter what was this demon that so stubbornly refused, even on her deathbed, to allow herself to rest, to let go at last, to release at last this endless need to be perfect. And then it occurred to me how perhaps unrealistic it was for me to even imagine or think that somehow at the moment of death any of us might miraculously find the grace to release one of these most driving and compulsive urges that we never even release in our life. Now, conventionally, we might call this urge or this demon the search for the ideal or the search for the perfect. In this teaching, the Buddha called it bhava. In Pali, the word is bhava. means becoming. It is something quite distinct from the word bhavana, which is actually the definition of meditation. But the word bhavana means to cultivate, to bring into being, or to allow into being. Bhava, or becoming, 
is a kind of existential, seems almost existential, but certainly a very profound restlessness that is always chasing perfection. It's an inner restlessness and anxiety that keeps us in constant motion. It's an impulse that's driven by um, discontent, by anxiety, by a lot of self-doubt. And it's a restlessness or a process that makes it very difficult for us to rest or to be still in our lives or to find joy or ease or contentment. Reflect a little bit on this word restlessness, what it means to be without rest, to be deprived of rest. I think somehow we believe that without this restlessness, life, our life, is going to lose its meaning. We will lose our meaning. We will be no one, invisible, left behind, unworthy, directionless. Bhava, this process of becoming, can be both unconscious, which it often is, and also kind of semi-conscious. Unconscious, it's like an impulse that is born of clinging and craving. We see it here how again and again we seem to find ourselves occupying this really completely absurd position of trying to reorder our world to fit our agenda and desires. It's really absurd. And yet over and over again, we find ourselves trying to create this perfect moment, this perfect life, be the perfect person, where we have everything we want and nothing we don't want, where we are, who we believe we need to be or should be a position that involves automatically so much struggle of eliminating everything that we don't want. It seems so hard to embrace our humanness that we will grieve, we will experience loss, we will stumble, we will err, we will make mistakes. There will be the imperfect, there will be the flawed, This is the nature, part of our life. It's so hard for us to believe that somehow we are not exempt. Maybe everybody else does that, but not us. We are somehow exempt. It is is a kind of delusion that makes us keep keep striving, keep, keep becoming, keep trying for the perfect. And I, I read this, I saw this ad recently in a magazine. You must think I spend my whole life reading magazines. <laughs> I don't actually spend my whole life reading magazines, but I spend a lot of time in airports and on airplanes. So <clears throat> I remember reading this magazine. There was this ad that says, aging is optional. <laughs> it was, of course, an ad for a face cream. Now, although most of us in our saner moments know this is completely not true, we might still buy the cream. 
<laughs> and isn't that amazing? We hope that, you know, it's actually going to be true. Isn't that an amazing thing to be doing? How often we live in this state of refusal, this non-acceptance in our heart that can't embrace reality. And that actually doesn't want to, it's not actually interested in embracing reality, including the reality of ourselves. So we go on what I call chasing the dragon, dreaming of this life, chasing this moment where all imperfections have been removed. And, of course, it's, like, it's sort of like banging our head against a wall over and over and over again. Because life, such as it is, stubbornly refuses to obey. Does that discourage us? No. <laughs> Instead, we, we find ourselves disappointed, we find ourselves angry with the world, most often we are angry and disapproving of ourselves. And we have this other line that comes in that says, well, I probably just didn't try hard enough. I probably just didn't make enough effort. I probably just not good enough. And, you know, we see this, I'm sure you've seen it in the meditation hall, where we think other people can that other people have managed to do this. You know, you look around and you're quite sure that everybody around you is having the absolute perfect sitting. (laughs) Maybe the whole room is having a perfect sitting, everybody but you. Isn't that amazing? The impulse to become, to reach out, to reorder our world and moment permeates our life. We feel unhappy, we want to become happy. We feel angry, we want to become loving. Envy arises and we cling to it and we become jealous. Pain arises and we cling to it and we become the sufferer. Fantasy takes hold and for a a moment we are a star in our own Hollywood blockbuster. (laughs) To, To cling to anything at all is to become what we cling to. This is a very simple formula. To cling to anything at all is to become what we cling to. The phrase, I am, is endlessly picking up new descriptions. I'm sad, I'm unworthy, I'm excited, I'm anxious. Now, in in this tradition, or uh, this process, is called samsara. In, In Tibetan... It's called korba, which means to walk in circles. To walk in circles. There's a story about Nasruddin, the Sufi master, that a disciple once found Nasruddin eating a pile of chili peppers. And the mullah sat with sweat pouring down his face, red with pain, And when asked why he was doing this to himself, he answered, If only I continue a little longer, I'm sure I'll find a sweet one. (laughs) That is samsara. 
Now, this, this is the delusion, actually. This is the delusion that keeps us clinging and that provides the fuel for becoming to go on and on. If only I found the right experience, the right mental state, the right object, the right person. If only I cling to the right thing. I will become who I need to be and have what I need to have, and then maybe I can rest. I think it's very important to make a clear distinction between what bhava is, this process of becoming, and what bhavana is. Bhava is the process of becoming someone or something based upon craving and clinging. The nature or the tone of bhava is agitation and restlessness. It's born of pain and it leads to further pain. Bhavana is to cultivate, to bring, to allow into being. It is what we do in our practice. So what are we cultivating? Well, what we are not cultivating is the perfect meditator. What we are cultivating is the mindfulness and the understanding that allows the release of craving and clinging. We are allowing into being the trust, the joy, the ease, the stillness. Bhava, the process of becoming, is designed to make the story of self bigger and bigger and more and more remarkable. I am someone. I have something. I think Woody Allen once said, I'd rather be a miserable somebody than a happy nobody. (laughs) It's to have something to say, this is me. Bhavana, to bring into being, actually makes the story of self a little lighter, a little more transparent. It calms the agitation of the heart. It ends the contractedness of becoming. Bhavana is to bring into being all that is wholesome and liberating and joyful and creative and true. Now, this desire to become someone special, to be remarkable, to stand out, to be excellent, to be perfect in all things, this is clearly not just a personal quest. I think as a society, as a culture, we have an addiction to specialness. I see it very much with young people, the pressure to become the pressure to become someone, as if any as if any other alternative is failure. And actually, I say young people. This process begins when they're about five years old. You know, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, already. You know, well, hey, do I have a moment to think about that? You know, I'm just born. You know. <laughs> a minute here, you know, to live without thinking about what I have to become. 
Because being special in our culture, it seems, is what brings approval and admiration. And it's like we have an allergy to ordinariness. It would make us dull. You know, it, it would make us kind of invisible. And I think we welcome this addiction and this demon, this addiction to perfection and becoming too easily into our hearts. I came across another magazine article. <laughs> you know, I've never bought a magazine in years. Now, the title of this article really says it all. The title is Shopping for a Perfect Self. And then it went on, the jokey bumper sticker slogan, I shop therefore I am, could actually be, this is written by a psychologist, by the way, could actually be marking a serious truth according to an increasing number of sociologists and psychologists. Consuming can be considered a vital and necessary path to (laughs) self-discovery. We dream of shopping for beauty, truth, and perfection. And if we do not shop for a perfect society, at least we can shop for a perfect self. And the article goes on, went on to say, that when the gap between the self we are and the self we want to be seems too big, we try to bridge it with the things we buy. Shopping has become a metaphor for self-definition. We shop for the right partner or philosophy, the right body and appearance, for happiness and for the person we want to be. It is a process of searching. What goes on in our stores is, of course, a metaphor for the turmoil and discontent that can too often be the landscape and climate of our hearts. Becoming, you can almost think, as a process of shopping. That it's, it's shopping for the perfect self. It's rooted in discontent and profound self-doubt. That can't allow ourselves to rest. We must always become better, more perfect, more excellent. And I, I think in this practice we could devise a better bumper sticker. You know, it says, at peace with the imperfect, we have renounced shopping. <laughs> okay. One of Mary Oliver's poems, you do not have to be good, you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. 
when we read or hear this poem, there's probably part of us that wants to cheer. You know, we don't have to be good. We don't have to walk on our knees for a hundred miles. We don't have to repent and earn perfection. And then there's probably another part of us that finds ourselves wondering, do we really believe it? Do we really trust that we do not have to be perfect to be worthy? We do not have to be special to find our place in the family of things and that we do not have to be perfect to be free. Or do we sometimes still find ourselves with this sort of gnawing self-doubt that really steals the treasure of stillness from our hearts? Still this doubt that says, well, I'm not quite good enough. And if I'm not special, I'll be a failure. I think this demand for perfection is perhaps particularly a burden to women in our culture today. I see it. It's a burden, some inner demon that can grow heavier and heavier. I meet so many women who imagine that they should be able to, you know, host fantastic dinner parties, plan the perfect vacations for their families, hold down a demanding job, stay in shape, have interesting hobbies, be a perfect parent, a perfect partner, still smile, juggle work, relationships, careers, and at the same time be improving themselves on a daily basis. And then, you know, we think, oh, that's not me. I don't do that, you know. <clears throat> but we feel the pressure of always having to have something to report about what we're working on or how much better we're becoming, what we're achieving. And, and then, of course, we discover that perfection is a constantly moving target. And discontent follows it like a shadow. And we wonder, is there room in all of that pursuit for any contentment to really open to ourselves and to life, just as we are, just as it is? Of course, the very valid question arises about what is really the difference between the quest for a life of authenticity, a life of creativity in which we are being all that it is possible for us to be, and this process of becoming. And I I think it's an important question, because to surrender becoming does not imply that for the rest of our lives we're glued to a meditation cushion, you know, and, and we have no life of creativity, no life of engagement or participation. But the difference between living an authentic creative life and this process of pursuing perfection lies in the presence or absence of agitation. An authentic life is not one that's governed by fear and doubt, by craving and clinging. The difference lies in the presence or absence of joy. I think that this quest for perfection, this process of becoming, is probably the shadow or the near enemy, we might say, of the quest to live an authentic and free life. I mean, all of us in our lives long to live with as much happiness and creativity as we can. We long to serve others, to find as much compassion as possible, 
to be as free as we can be. All of us long to have an embodied life, a life that embodies what we most deeply value, what we're committed to do, committed to. To do all that we are able to do and as well as we can with as much integrity as possible. And I think the real question is, can we do all of this? Can we live this life, this embodied life, this authentic life, creative life, without craving and clinging, without this predominance of selfing, without this incessant restlessness that propels us to become one thing after another? It's really a question of can we learn to undo that habit of a lifetime that actually does so much damage to our well-being. We do know that to bring into being all that is liberating and healing and joyful actually requires some effort. It requires our wholehearted and engagement and participation. And so Dalai Lama once said, Enlightenment is hard work. To be free in our lives, to truly understand what that means, I think most of us are realistic and wise enough to know that it's actually just not enough to sit around and wait for some great bolt of enlightenment to strike us. You know, none of us are going to wake up one morning, look in the mirror, and see the Buddha staring back at us. You know, we also know in our hearts that it's foolish to imagine that someone or something outside of ourselves is somehow going to deliver to us a perfect and blissful life. We know in ourselves that to be well in our bodies asks more than a life that is dedicated to pizza and beer. Mm-hmm. We know that it's unlikely that we could spend our life lost in fantasy and obsession and somehow imagine that that's going to deliver to us a radiant and calm mind. But I think it's really important to to really ask that can we approach this path of awakening without turning it into a new path of becoming, without it being hijacked into a new quest for perfection. You know, when I began to practice, I, I became aware actually quite a bit later on that one of the mostly unconscious motivations that I brought to the path was that I I saw it as a sort of more enlightened way of achieving the perfection that I'd sought in so so many other dimensions of my life. Actually, not so many. I'm exaggerating because I was only 17. So, you know, limited experience here. But I did see the way that lifelong patterns of self-doubt and beliefs and unworthiness and self-blame were being transferred into my path of practice. But we're kind of being, in this weird way, translated into a new language. My previous beliefs that I needed to be more remarkable or lovable or acceptable got sort of superseded by these new goals and new language. Now I needed to be more peaceful. I needed to be more spiritual. You know, I needed to be more enlightened. And I think sometimes we see that subtle transference happening. I mean, 
imagine, you know, the interview groups was a kind of interesting thing on a retreat, but imagine coming to an interview group and just saying, nothing's happened. (laughs) Quite happily. Quite happily. But how we see almost the moment we open our mouth, you know, it's like somehow... We have to have a story to tell the world, which is not to say that our stories are wrong or anything wrong with them, but we can see this this pressure almost to present, the pressure to, to be someone in ourselves. I think it's an an ongoing investigation. It's an ongoing journey of investigation to keep looking at where this quest for becoming, this quest for perfection gets transferred into our practice. Because when it does get transferred, then our practice just becomes another locale for experiencing the same frustration, the same disappointment, and the same self-doubt. Thomas Merton once said, The essence of spiritual practice is a search for truth that springs from love. This love, of course, is not self-punishment, nor self-negation, nor self-denial, nor is truth. We might say that love comes into being when we find the wisdom and the courage to step off this wheel of becoming. Love embraces imperfection. We might say that that's the nature of love. And it includes loving the ordinary. You know, sometimes we really just have an ordinary mind that does ordinary things, has thoughts, images, intentions. It's just doing the ordinary things a mind does. Sometimes we just have an ordinary body that does ordinary things, has sensations, pain, pleasure, lots of neutral. Loving that is what allows the luminous and the radiant mind into being. Love is tending to what is rather than endlessly seeking what is not. This mind, just as it is, with all its flaws and imperfections, caring for it just as it is, allows something else to come into being. This body, these emotions, a spectrum of mental states we all meet in every day in our life, learning to meet that fully, allows into being our capacity to greet and to welcome this life. Perfection may not be the point in our life where we feel that nothing more can be added. Perfection may be that point in our heart when we deeply know that nothing can be taken away. When we look deeply into our life, we see a succession of mini-births and mini-deaths, moment to moment. 
Sounds rise and fall. So too do our, does our breath. So too do our thoughts. So too do, does our emotions. We sense everything appearing and fading. Everything we see, hear, touch, taste, experience. The lovely and the unlovely, the delightful, the disturbing, the sorrowful, the joyful. We can't choose in any way to separate ourselves from this endless flow of conditions. We are part of that endless flow of conditions. But we begin to see, and I think wisdom teaches us, that we can choose how we engage with and participate in this flow of conditions. We may be able to choose how free, how compassionate, how wise we can be. And I think more and more we sense that the freedom of our awakening is really rooted in the ground of the cessation of craving, clinging, becoming. This is the eternal teaching of the Buddha, the eternal teaching of all great mystics, that the cessation of craving, clinging, becoming allows into being happiness and joy and freedom. This is not some new ideal of perfection to pursue, but actually something to contemplate and to embody moment to moment. The thought that we're experiencing right now, no matter how it is, the feeling we're experiencing right now, no matter what it is, the restlessness, the discontent, the anger, the imperfect, all of these are in truth the classroom of our awakening. In the midst of all of this, the Buddha encouraged to contemplate, this is not me, this is not who I am, this is not myself. This is not a theoretical contemplation. It is, in truth, what liberates us. And we're really encouraged to place this contemplation. This is not me. This is not who I am. This is not myself. We're encouraged to place that in the center of our practice. Our knee hurts. How immediate is our reaction to resist, to get rid of it, or to endure it? How quickly, you see, I and my knee are actually married by clinging. I hurt. And the whole story of hurt in our life replays itself. We find ourselves bound and imprisoned. And we can't imagine in that moment not suffering, not hurting, not being angry. And we're encouraged to contemplate. This is not me. This is not who I am. This is not myself. And if we really can contemplate that, suddenly we feel a little freer. We can allow into being wise response. Maybe we need to shift our position. We can allow into being our capacity and compassion for this aching body, this aching mind, this aching heart. We can allow tenderness and care and wise action into being. We might have a sitting where it all goes wrong. The mind is wayward. We find ourselves lost in fantasy. And for a while, we become the storyteller. And sometimes either all the wonderful and delightful feelings that come with that story or the terrible ones. 
And then we have that moment where we wake up from the story. And that can seem to open another door of becoming. Now we're frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm, I blew it again. I'm a failure. We find the judging. And we cling to that, and actually we become the eternal failure. We become the worst meditator in the world in that moment. And we are sure it's going to be there forever. We're convinced of its truth. And then lo and behold, something else arises. A thought about lunch. (laughs) It calls our attention to it, and we're drawn to it, and we become something else. Whatever we are drawn to, to this is the place where we see either the arising of clinging or the cessation of clinging. We contemplate, this is not me. This is not who I am. This is not myself. And suddenly, for a moment, we can unhook, we can disentangle, we can allow into being forgiveness and generosity and compassion. Craving conditions clinging. Clinging conditions becoming. Becoming conditions birth. Birth conditions death. We see this wheel turning, going round and round, day by day. Shantideva once said, I yearn for the freedom from pain, but rush straight into it. I long for happiness, but foolishly crush it like an enemy. With each turn of the wheel, we find ourselves In the highs, the lows, the gains, the losses, the praise, the blame, the anxiety, the doubt, the hope. We can also explore in those moments what it means to bring the wheel to stillness. This is not me. This is not who I am. This is not myself. Because it works the other way too. Not lost in craving. We are not lost in clinging. Not lost in clinging, we are not lost in becoming. And what comes into being, what is allowed into being, is the freedom to rest in the suchness of all things. The freedom of heart, a liberated heart. There's a poem it says, My daily affairs are quite ordinary but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything, don't reject anything. Nowhere an obstacle or conflict. Who cares about wealth and honor? Even the poorest thing shines. My miraculous power and spiritual activity is drawing water and carrying wood. Take a moment quietly.
not lost in craving, not lost in clinging, not lost in clinging, not lost in becoming. Allowing into being a free and liberated heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.